Our reading tonight comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 36 and 42 to 44. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. So you, too, must keep watch, for you don't know the day your Lord is coming. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the time, uh, ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, so to recap, we kind of started off this discourse um, talking about kingdom and this kind of grand narrative that the scripture tells that's different than the narrative of kind of sin and redemption that a lot of us are used to. Um, it maybe uh, even overshadows that a little bit because it goes before the original sin and continues after the final redemption. When things are fully redeemed, this kingdom narrative will still be in play. It'll still be the, the big story that's happening. And so when Jesus comes saying, uh, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's playing into this grand biblical narrative that's been there from the beginning and will be there all the way to the end. Been there from Genesis where he said, let's make man in our own image and give him dominion or rule over the earth. And, and so God was going to rule in cooperation with man. And in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book, it says there'll be this new city and the tree of life will be there like before. Um, there's this garden narrative again. The leaves will go for the healing of the nations. There'll be no curse anymore. So all this this kind of garden language picks up and it says that God and the Lamb will be on the throne and their servants will rule the earth along with them. So we kind of restore this Genesis 1 vision um, again. And so we're, Jesus is talking about that grand narrative of kingdom. And then we kind of dove into the what we call the eschatological discourse, um, the discourse of the last days, the last times, um, where Jesus... Uh, uh, is coming out of Jerusalem and the disciples kind of point to him this temple, like look how amazing this thing is, this Herod's temple. It was known as one of the great wonders of that time and and uh, supposed to be a complete work of art. And Jesus kind of sees through that and says that, you know, there's going to come a day when not one stone will stand on another. This thing's coming down. And so they start to ask him, when is this stuff going to happen? They actually ask him two questions. When he got to the Mount of Olives, a lot of people call this the Olivet Discourse, he gets to the Mount of Olives and they're like, when is all this stuff going to happen and what's it going to look like when it does? And this is where we dove in last week. These two questions, when and what's it going to look like? And Jesus kind of answers the questions backwards. First he starts with what's this going to look like and he says it's going to look like every other day. He basically said you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be some earthquakes. There's going to be all these things. And really he described what is almost every day of the last 2,000 years. Um, this, this nation's going to rise up against nation and people are going to backbite and fight each other and, you know, it's going to be like every other day. And so a lot of times we look at these things and we kind of hunt for these, for these key moments like when, when, when's it going to happen? How are we going to know it's happening? And every generation of Christians since then has thought they were in the last days because almost every day since Jesus left has looked like that description. So there's not a lot of help there. And so then he dives into the second question. He says, now concerning when? It's going to happen. Concerning your other question, no man knows the hour or the time, he says. Not even the son knows. And so he basically doesn't really answer either question. He just kind of lays out this, this picture. And we, we find that what he's more interested than when it's going to happen is the nature of the waiting. 
He says, how are you going to wait? And he talks about uh, being prepared really for the rest of this sermon. So for the rest of this chapter and the entire next chapter, he just gives these parables. He kind of gives this breakdown. Uh, and it's all answering this question, how do I wait? How do I wait? Like what? So he, he kind of gives real vague answers to their questions. And then it goes into this idea of being ready. And everything from here on is really answering that question about being ready. So tonight we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're actually going to do uh, basically a chapter and a half because these go together. We generally treat them separately. We'll, we'll do like a whole sermon on each of these parables. And there's a lot in them. You can absolutely do that. But they were given together. And I think they were given together for a reason. I mean, this is a fairly short sermon and he ties them all kind of together. And so I think we're going to kind of do it that way. Um, but first we've got to deal with one thing, and that's the concept of hell. And I do not have time to fully unpack this. Um, but every single one of these parables ends with like this terrible punishment. Like, you know, and so one of them, uh, the English, most translations translate it, um, he cut him in half. He, he rendered him asunder and then uh, gave him his portion with the hypocrites. And and uh, which is funny because the literal kind of says that, but that same Greek for, or that same Greek phrase can also, uh, in one other place, is translated flogged. He was beaten, and so I don't know that it has to mean he tore him in half. It'd kind of be like us saying kicked his butt. You know, we don't necessarily mean a, a literal kick in the butt. It, so I have a feeling this phrase tore him asunder just means he tore him up. It doesn't literally mean he cut him in half. It just means he might even just mean he chewed him out real good. But there's some problems if we if we feel like these are talking about hell. Um, there can be some issues because every single one of the people we're going to talk about had a relationship um, with the master. And so this isn't like good people and evil people. This isn't believers, unbelievers. These are all people that have a relationship with the master and they somehow mess up this idea of being prepared for his coming. And there's a, there's definitely a punishment. I'm not taking that away. But I think if you make this about eternal hell, you can get real messed up with these kind of parables. And so um, I'm going to, I don't have time to fully unpack this because believe me, it's a series in and of itself. If we dealt with Jesus and hell and, and the metaphors he used, uh, because he uses several different metaphors here, none of which are Gehenna, which is his normal word for hell, which was actually the proper noun name for the town dump just outside of Jerusalem. So some people believe when he would say Gehenna, he was actually meaning it's going to be like going to the dump. You know, he did, and, and we've taken that metaphor to extend it to mean eternal conscious torment in a burning hell. Now, I'm not necessarily taking that away because there are some passages that kind of talk about that as well. I'm just saying I don't believe these passages are doing that. And so for the sake of tonight, just give me the benefit of the doubt. And go with me that I don't think that's what he's talking about here because I could spend way too much time unpacking that. But, uh, but I don't believe this talks about eternal hell when he talks about this. He, he's more focused on the waiting, uh, on the nature of waiting, and he's, and he's giving us a good metaphor for, hey, you don't want to mess this up is basically what he's saying. But I don't think this is like a threat for going to hell. But you'll have to give me the benefit of the doubt on that because we don't have time to fully... Unpack it. So he gives this first parable. And it's the parable of the wicked servant. I'm going to read this. I'm not going to read all of them because some of them are a little long. Whoops, did I just not put that up? Or did my thing just die? Okay. A faithful, sensible servant is one whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his 
other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put him, put that servant in charge of all that he owns. But if that servant is evil and thinks my master won't be back for a while, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk, the master will return unannounced and unexpected. Whoops, I forgot to move on. And he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. If that place, uh, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the first one. The wicked servant, it's called. And this is basically your average teenager whose parents go out of town, right? The guy, they, they, they leave and the guy throws a party and gets kind of wild. Um, and this is, so this is Jesus' kind of first picture of somebody who gets it wrong, who gets the waiting wrong. And, and I gotta be honest, when I, when I read it and it, it says, you know, starts to beat the other servants, um, I couldn't help but see the church in that. You know, this, this, uh, concept of when Peter, uh, when Peter was restored after he denied Jesus and he was restored to Jesus, um, Jesus restores him with this interesting question. He says, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, I love you. And he's like, but do you love me? He's like, Lord, of course I love you. He's like, but do you love me? And he's like, dude, you know everything. Of course you know I love you. And he's like, then feed my sheep. It's kind of an interesting, uh, so the commission that Peter gets is to go f- take care of my people, then go feed my sheep. And, uh, and so when this guy kind of gets left and, and he's kind of left in charge of feeding the people and he doesn't do it. Instead, he turns on the people and kind of gets even abusive. I, I couldn't help but see the church, especially at some key points in history, but, but definitely the church has a tend to do more, the church has a tendency to do more picking on people than encouraging and feeding people sometimes. And I, I think, uh, I think it's just a, a caution that kind of jumped out at me. But the thing that got me the most was this, uh, this guy's kind of deliberate and, uh, and really belligerent attitude where he's like, ah, my master's not coming back. And he, and he kind of starts to do whatever he wants. And it, it feels very intentional. And this kind of struck a nerve with me. It's, in, in my house, we really only have one like mortal sin and that's disrespect. Like my, my kids get a little bit wild. They get crazy. They do some things that don't always make me happy and, and stuff, but I give them quite a bit of leash. And, and even in terms of debate and, and challenge, I'm fine with them saying, Hey, I don't like the way you're doing this, blah, blah, blah. If they do it respectful, I've got this funny, like the second they get disrespectful, I completely lose my mind. Like I'm, I can deal with a lot except for disrespect. It's one of those things that when they get all snappy, I completely, you know, then I get irrational and start disrespecting them. And it's downhill from there. But, uh, but so this guy, this kind of disrespectful, ah, my master's not coming back. And, you know, uh, I can do whatever I want thing kind of, kind of hit a nerve with me. And, and that's kind of what got me looking at, at the, the way these parables fit together. Cause this guy seems to have kind of a unique attitude of it doesn't matter what I do. God is uninvolved. He's, he's completely put off his coming. God's aloof. He kind of has this attitude about God that God is, uh, doesn't care. That he's not going to get punished. That he can do whatever he wants. And, uh, and so I, I immediately did not resonate with this guy. Like immediately I was like, you know, not me. Definitely not me. I'm not that kind of person. I don't just kind of blow off, um, you know, God and, and judgment and things. And then I rolled into the next parable that I think Jesus kind of brought up intentionally. So if you're not resonating with the guy who just says, you know, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. There's, you know, 
God's not coming back anyway, then, uh, then he gives this parable to you. Then the kingdom of heaven is like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil in their lamps, but the five who were wise enough to take, uh, but the other five were wise enough to take extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were roused by a shout. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was locked. Later, when the other bridegrooms retur- bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called, believe me, I do not know you. So you too must keep watch for you do not know the day or the hour of my return. So this is the five uh, wise and five foolish bridesmaids. And back then, you know, they didn't have electric light. And so if you were uh, riding to another place, especially at night, they would stand people outside who would hold up lamps and you would kind of see the little, you know, lit party and that would draw you to where you were going. That's how you knew where you were going. And so these, uh, they're waiting and it's taking longer than they expected. And five of them were unprepared. And so these are like, uh, you know, these are just people who are not very mindful. This is, this is my kids in their bedroom. Like when you walk in, they're like, my room's clean. And you're like, there's a plate of half-eaten food that, on the floor that looks like it's been there for three weeks. Like, oh yeah, I didn't see that. You're like, huh? You said the room was clean. Like this, this is that type of, of personality, the, the kind of unprepared. But I did notice there's nothing like the first guy here. These aren't the belligerent. This is, there's nothing belligerent here. There's nothing like intentionally, you know, evil here. They're not like, ah, oh, he's not coming. What's it matter? Blah, blah, blah. This is just carelessness, right? This is just, just lack of preparation. The worst you could maybe say is they didn't count the cost and decide exactly how much oil it was going to take, you know, to get through. But, but really nothing, Real bad here. A couple uh, couple weeks ago, um, I talked about grace, and I was talking about how, and it kind of hit me in that sermon how surprising grace usually is. You know how uh, how every time it shows up in the scripture, it's kind of a shock and kind of a surprise, and and how I hadn't really given it full thought. But sometimes when we count on grace, it becomes something else. You know, when we're like, oh, I can do whatever I want. God has grace. Like, I don't know that that's always grace. Grace is that thing when you're expecting punishment and instead you get acceptance. And that, you know, that grace, all, every time it shows up in the Bible, it seems to just, it's the last thing they were looking for was for God to just overwhelm them with grace. And, and I kind of saw that a little bit in this story. It's, it's like these bridesmaids just assume when you read it and you kind of look, try to get in their heads a little bit, they just assume everything's going to be fine. Right? Of course they're going to let me in. When they come up and, hey, let us in, you know, blah, blah. But they had a specific job to do. They didn't do it. But then they still, you know, these are, these are the millennials. Let's be honest. These are the entitled, you know, I have a right to be inside whether I did my job or not kind of thing. Um, you know, and so you see this different attitude of almost expecting acceptance, right? They're just, you know, they come in knocking on the door saying, hey, let us in, let us in. And they get surprised by, um, almost the hardness of the bridegroom, 
you know, because they're they're just assuming they're in. They're just assuming, you know, that it's going to be okay. That even though they didn't do anything, even though they didn't prep, even though they weren't ready when he came, they're assuming the ease of the bridegroom. So we kind of have these assumptions going on of what the master's like. The first guy assumes the master is aloof. He's gone. He doesn't care. He's not coming back. I can do whatever I want. Then you get the second group of people and their assumption is the master is easy. He's, he's going to open the door for us. Everything's going to be fine. We didn't do what we were supposed to do, but that's all right. Everything's cool. He has grace. He's a nice guy. He's going to let us in. And they're kind of surprised. Of course he'll let me in. But that's not what happens. So the, the wicked servant makes an assumption. turns out to be wrong. And the ten or the five foolish bridesmaids make an assumption and turn out to be wrong. And many of us have a tendency to go, oh, I'm not either. Of course, I, I take things very seriously. I, I don't, uh, I'm not, you know, I don't think the Lord is aloof. I don't think he doesn't care. I don't do whatever I want. And I definitely don't just assume there's going to be grace. That's why I'm a moralist. That's why I do certain things and don't do certain things. Because I know this is serious business and I know that God means business. And, and so we don't resonate with either, which is when Jesus kind of swoops in with the next one. Whoops, did I? Oh, I didn't click along at all there, did I? Sorry about that. The next one, the next parable, which is the parable of the talents. And I'm not going to read this one because it's kind of long, but we're all kind of familiar with it. It says that the master uh, was going out of town and he brought three servants to him and three stewards. And he gave each of them different things. He gave one ten talents and one five talents and one two talents or something. I think this one's five, two, and one. Or that was different in different gospels. But he, he gives them different talents and, and he goes away. When he comes back, the guy who had ten talents had doubled it. And he's like, awesome, I'm going to make you, put you in charge of all kinds of stuff. And the one who was given five talents doubles it. And, uh, and, he, and he's like, awesome, I'm going to put you in charge of a lot of stuff. And the one who was given the least number of talents came and, and uh, hadn't done anything with it. But he kept it safe. He locked it in and, and came and said, hey. And, and, and what he says, I think, is what really matters. Because I think he's also making a value judgment about the master. Here's what he says. Then the servant, the one with one bag of silver, came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid that I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. So if you're, if you're not the first guy, you're not the belligerent type that says, I can do whatever I want, nobody can stop me. And you're not the, the girls where it's like, oh, I'm automatically going to be accepted. Of course, everything is, he's so nice. Of course, he's going to let me in. You know, maybe you're the type that's like, no, I, I, I know God, it means business. Then, then maybe you're this guy where you're like, no, I knew you were hard. I knew you wanted me to act a certain way and live a certain way. I knew that, that, that you mean business, that God is, that God is a holy, righteous judge. And I don't want to mess up. I, I don't want to. So I don't take chances, I don't, I don't relax, I don't enjoy things because God is hard. So this third guy, he makes a value judgment on the master. He says, I know that God is hard, I know God is holy, I know God is righteous, so I don't do any of those things. And his end is no different. He, he doesn't just rebuke the guy for not making him money, but he winds up taking his money away and kicking him out too. And so we now have a guy who's willfully disobedient, Somebody who's just kind of casually careless and, and then somebody who is fearfully legalistic. 
we got three people, and it's all based on how they see the master. So I can imagine the disciples at this point kind of being like, so what do we do? <laughs> like if, we, if, if, we're, if we're not supposed to just do whatever we want and we're not supposed to just casually accept that we're in and that everything's going to be fine and that we're, you know, that what we do doesn't really matter. We can, he's going to love us no matter what because that's who he is. And we can't live legalistically and say, no, I know he's hard, so I've got to make sure I get my stuff together because I know he's a judge. Then what do we do? And this whole thing started with Jesus saying, be watchful. Watch. Wait. Make sure you're ready. And so at this point we're like, how? Because if we, if we are, do whatever we want, we're wrong. If we do nothing, we're wrong. And if we, you know, fear him so much that we, we take no chances, we're wrong. And I feel like Jesus kind of answers this with the last one. This wasn't actually a parable. Because he didn't give it in the form of the story. He actually does it almost like it's going to be, uh-oh. Almost like it's going to be, uh, my thing locked up. Well, we may have to finish without a, I can read it to you. Hmm. Uh, almost like it's a prediction. He gives this last part in the form of a, of a this is what's going to happen kind of thing. We call it the parable of the sheeps and goats. It's how he finishes up this entire sermon. He says, in the, in the final judgment, the Son of Man is going to return and he's going to separate the nations into two groups, sheep and goats. And to one, he's going to say, well done, you did awesome. Uh, come, into, come into my glory. And they're like, because when I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was alone, you came and visited me. Uh, welcome. And they're like, excuse me, when did we do any of these things? Like, when did we feed you or I don't even remember seeing you. He's like, when you did this to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then the other ones, he turned to me and he said, out, you're gone. You know, I'm done with you. Um, because when I was hungry, you didn't give me food. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was alone, you didn't visit me. And they're like, I don't even remember seeing you in that condition. And he's like, when you ignored the least of these, your brethren, you were doing that to me. And so it's almost like, uh, and, then, and, and I think what strikes me most out of this whole story is the surprise of those who are rewarded and those who are punished. The, the, almost like they were clueless that they were doing anything worthy of punishment. It says it like this. Then these righteous ones replied, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? So these people weren't, they were, they were as surprised as anybody else that they were being rewarded. Now remember, this is answering that question of how do we wait? How do we wait? He's been telling it. He's been telling these stories about people who waited wrong. This wicked servant who waited wrong and these five foolish bridesmaids who waited wrong and this, this kind of overly cautious, fearful person who waited wrong. And then he tells this story. These are the people that are rewarded. The ones that just go about loving others. Just loving people. Just caring for people. Almost casually. These are not people who are like white-knuckling obedience. Like, I have a command to love, so I have to love. I'm going to do it. These are people who, when Jesus comes and says, well done, they're like, what did I do? Like, I didn't do anything. Why am I getting rewarded? 
And this anchors a huge biblical reality. Uh, and I wish I could put this one up, but nothing's going to work. I love technology. Hopefully if I got closer, it would work. First John 4.20 and 21, if you have your Bible, you can open to it. If not, I'll read it to you. If someone says, I love God, but does not love his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he can see, how can he love God who he does not see? And this, and this commandment we have from Jesus, that he who loves God must love his brother also. I'm going to read that again. If someone says, I love God, but does not love his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from Jesus, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So if you want to know how deeply the gospel has gone into your heart, kind of how far down into the iceberg the gospel has gotten, the litmus test is very simple. Do you love people? Do you love people? Because if you're like, of course I'm a Christian. Look, I, I pray and I read my Bible and I listen to Caleb and I, and I pray and I fast. I don't watch R-rated movies. I'm faithful to church. Of course. John would say, those things are great, but do you love people? Do you love people? All the rest are great tools, but they're tools for us. Like never have you read your Bible and God is in heaven like, whew, I'm glad you read that Bible. I really needed that. Like, no, that's not a service we do for God. That's something that God has offered to us. It's an incredible, amazing tool for, to make our lives better and to help equip us to do the work of God. But it's not something we do for God. The Bible is not something we do, you know, to, to somehow bless God. That's a gift that's given to us. Prayer is the same way. Prayer is something God has offered us that we can that we can go to Him. You know, we don't like somehow sustain God with our prayers. God's just fine. He's given those things to us as gifts. The one thing He's asked us to do is to love people, to show love to people. You know, one thing I've learned about marriage. Um, anybody ever read the Five Love Languages? It's been around forever and ever and ever. Like it's it's a kind of a staple now is that if you try to love your spouse using your love language, they often won't hear it. Like for years, I just assumed my wife knew I loved her because I grabbed her on the butt every time I came home from work. I mean, if she did that for me, I would take it as love. So I just assumed, you know, the other way is that that's how she knows I love her, right? And she was not hearing it that way. She was not hearing love in that. That's not her love language. And I feel like this story, if it's nothing else, my daughters are over here like blushing. They're hiding. Yeah. So what I think this story is, if it's nothing else, is this Jesus revealing his love language to us. I think oftentimes we try to love Jesus with all these things we've been taught as spiritual disciplines. And, and this is how we show our love and devotion for Jesus as we we pray and we fast and we sing and we, we, you know, read our Bibles and we, this is how we show Jesus our love. And, and in, this par- in this final story, Jesus says, here's my love language. Love people. Go love people. Feed people. Clothe people. Give people what they need. Take care of people. Love people. And I just feel 
completely and utterly loved. That's, that's like Jesus saying, that's my love language. That's how I know you love me. That's how I feel your love is when you love people. So if you're memorizing scripture and studying theology and refraining from certain movies to show God how much you love him, you're speaking the wrong love language. That's not his love language. Which leads me to the hard part. When you bump into those people that you don't like, the person on the other side of the political party, do you hate them for trying to ruin your country with their dumb ideas? Or do you love them and feel for them and, and try to understand that they see things different? Is your instinct, your gut level instinct to, to love them and have compassion on them? Or do they immediately become the enemy? When you see a group of teenagers acting wild, maybe even destructively, and just, you know, being disrespectful, and is your knee-jerk reaction to, man, those kids are worthless? Or does your heart immediately go out to them in love? And immediately do you, do you, does your heart break for them a little bit? And do you, do you feel compassion and passion for them? What about your boss, your annoying neighbor, the person who hurt you in the past? Is your knee-jerk reaction love? Because John would say, if you're saying that you love God, but you don't love them, you're lying. Because it's all about loving others. And this final story is, I've been telling you all along that this, this discourse scares me. But I, I think over the last week as I've been tinkering with these three parables and this final uh, kind of prediction, uh, I've kind of fallen in love with this discourse because I think Jesus is, is kind of intentionally messing with us. We, we go here for answers to what's the end going to look like, what's it going to be like, and blah, blah, blah. You know, let's, and we, we like to tinker and play with it and look for signs. And what's this fig tree? Oh, this fig tree must be Israel, 1948, one generation. How far does that go? And blah, blah, blah. And we, we play around with all this stuff. And Jesus seems to conclude the whole thing with this big, um, hey, when I get back, I'm going to have one question for you. How did you treat people? How did you treat people? Because that was, that was how I was measuring. Did, did the plight of, of others, I didn't tell Judy I was going to do this, but Judy came to me and she was struggling. She was like, I've got these kids, you know, at her job. It's her job. I've got these kids in school that are, have so much potential and so much talent and I'm, I'm watching their lives kind of fall apart and, and it's, and it's breaking my heart. It's making it hard for me to have hope because I'm, I'm so broken by what's going on in their world. Is that what happens to us? Do we, does, the, does the plight of the world break our hearts? If not, then we need to let the gospel in deeper. We need to let it change us. How do we respond to this? And the king answered and, to, and said to them, Assuredly, I said to you, insomuch as you did this to the least of these, 
my brethren, you did it for me. Remember our very first discourse when we were talking about worry? And we were talking about how worry is one of those things when the Bible says worry not, it comes in the form of a command, which is one of those tricky things because that's the absolute one thing when you're anxious, when you're dealing with anxiety and someone says, stop being anxious. Like, well, that didn't help a bit. Like, if anything, that makes it worse. You can't command away anxiety, which I think is the very point Jesus is getting to, that the, the gospel works at such a deep level that it works beneath the command. I think love is that way too. I think when Jesus commands us to love, it, uh, it quickly reveals how little of this is in our power, how much we need the Holy Spirit, how much we need the gospel to change our hearts. And this is the mistake I think the church has kind of made because we have a tendency to so stress agape. Is everybody familiar with agape? It's, there's three Greek words that all get translated love in English. One is agape, and it means like this perfect, unconditional, kind of willful love, a love of the will, like that you choose to love somebody. And we push this so hard in the church that we kind of take the emotion out of love, like love is just a thing you do when you just white knuckle you know, you love someone even when they're not lovable. And that's, that's part of it. Agape love, will love is you should love people even when they're unlovable. You should show love even when it's unlovable. But when Jesus talks about love, the, the prodigal son story is not agape love. The father is not like emotionless when he says, when he accepts the son back in. He runs to him and he cries and he throws himself on his son and he covers him with a robe. This is not agape Jesus is talking about. This is emotional passionate love. This is, this is a broken heart for, from a father to a son. This is, this is deep feeling love. And if, and if we don't have that for people, we need to let the gospel in deeper. We need to say, God, change my heart. I can't love like that on my own. Because honestly, people, I'm going to do it. People piss me off sometimes. They make me angry and I, and I don't want to love them and they hit all the wrong nerves and, and, and I need you, Jesus. If I'm going to love like this, if I'm going to be one of the ones that, that he comes back and just finds me loving on people, I have to have the Holy Spirit. I, I can't love like that on my own. So if when you hear messages like that, it, it makes you uncomfortable and it makes you kind of wiggle and like, I'm real good at the other stuff. I'm real good at the, at the list. I'm real good at reading my Bible and praying and making sure I don't do this, making sure I don't do that. But love, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. And to hear someone say that's the one Jesus is going to hammer on when he gets back is did you love people? If that makes you uncomfortable, makes you squirm, then I would hope that our response would be, Holy Spirit, come and work on my heart. Come and change my heart. I need a new heart. I, I want to love, like a, fill me full of love because I don't have it on my own. I just don't. I'm, I'm, I'm not that person. I, I need that. So my hopes would be as we, as we sing and, and respond to this word that we would invite the Holy Spirit in to fill us full of love because that's what Jesus is after. Everything else is great. It's good for us. It makes our lives better if we do them. I'm not saying none of the other stuff matters. I'm not saying church doesn't matter, reading your Bible doesn't matter, prayer doesn't matter. It absolutely matters because that's how you get equipped to love better. That's how you get equipped to, 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 
to serve better, to treat people better. We need those things, but those are for us. When we love on God, we do it by loving on people. We do it by showing our love to people, by allowing our heart to be broken for the plight of others.